Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Let's get started. Matt Kalili is a first-generation immigrant who was born in this country because of entrepreneurship. Matthew launched his management career in 2003 by leading a pioneering online technology supplier and solution provider. As a senior marketing director, he positioned the company as both an internet retail top 500 and Inc. 500 fast-growing direct sales organization. Following half a decade of double-digit growth, Matthew, following nearly half a decade of double-digit growth, Matthew founded a fashion technology platform, which he managed to raise a funding round that was later awarded best business for a proposal he prepared during his MBA program. Matthew exited his startup in 2013 and founded his consultancy, Plan Writers. He and the Plan Writers team continue to enhance the success of early stage startups and help foreign entrepreneurs emigrate to the United States. Matthew, so happy to have you on the show. Thanks a lot, Corey. Appreciate being here. So Matt, we have so much we can talk about in terms of your personal evolution, raising money for a company, exiting a company, and then obviously what you do now to help folks raise money and do deals. But I want to, before we get into any of that, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because my guess is somebody that helps people put plans together was probably not at that stage, but you tell me. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just remember at an early age that I wanted to be my own boss. I was a kid in Rosalind and I just couldn't stand being told what to do, being ordered around, being in the classroom environment. I was a good student, but I always thought, hey, a lot of things that we taught were stupid at the end of the day and I had a better way of doing things. So I had an entrepreneurial itch pretty early. I found myself like as most kids doing some arbitrage where I was like buying candy and selling them to like my classmates and got into some gray area stuff back in like middle school, you could burn CDs. And I found that I could burn video games. Probably wouldn't, probably not very proud of it, but definitely have had some fun playing this, making a little bit of side money as a kid. I I just knew I wanted to get involved with entrepreneurship in some way. I'm actually going to, usually I go to a second question. That's my standard opening, but I can't, I want to hop in here because your bio said that you were born in this country out of entrepreneurship. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that comment. Yeah, I'm happy to. So my parents had a pretty good life in Iran and my my dad always just had an itch to come to America before before the revolution in 79. They had a little bookstore they were running and my dad wanted to run some business here doing just getting in like the tech world back in the 80s. Yeah, he was a teenager. He came here without his parents and literally lives in this country now because he had this itch to start a technology company and 
Iran's not the place to do that sort of thing. And America was planned it for a long time. And thank God we're here. Love it. Love it. All right. One last question. Looking back, what was the first deal of any type that you ever did? It could be something small when you were a kid or something early in your career. Whatever comes to mind, that was a deal. Not necessarily like a sale, but but some sort of deal. Oh, interesting. Let me see. Let me got to think back to my roots here, right? So as a kid, so I remember I was in college, right? And I remember I was able to get like American Express to have some sort of affiliate program. And I was able to open up credit cards with my fraternity, my classmates and build some sort of affiliate program. And I like spearheaded that and benefited from it. So that was, that was pretty cool using my position of influence. So obviously better our chapter, but also do well for myself. Love it. And listen, affiliate programs, especially as time has gone on in the online world, right? With influencers or educators, online courses like books, that's the type of deal that we have covered on this podcast a little bit here here and there. And it's it's one of those deals that we spend a lot of time talking about capital raising and M&A, right? Because those are two probably sure. types of deals. But one of the things that's different about this podcast is we also talk about things like affiliate deals and licensing and strategic alliances. So it's interesting that you had your little Amex affiliate deal as a college student. Yeah, I had really good access to American Express growing up. Like we, back in the day, they were really popular deal with a day Groupon types of deals. And, and when that was going on and Amex went on the bandwagon for that, I, I had a good relationship. We had this tech company selling like consumer electronics and like B2B equipment. I had a relationship with someone pretty high up there and I was able to leverage that. Love it. Love it. Give people a quick description, a little more detail about what you do for folks now. I do want to make sure people understand that because obviously doing plans in the deal world is important. And then I'll probably hop back a little bit to some of the past experiences and then we'll come back to how, but you give at least the high levels so people understand what you do now. Sure. So I'm the principal of a consultancy that exclusively specializes in preparing pitch decks and business plans. Uh, our use cases are very interesting. We'll deal with anyone from an idea that's pre-revenue to someone more mature doing complex projects, like even internationally. But people call us when, hey, I need to get a small bank loan for a Main Street business to someone that wants to go list a public company in Wall Street and needs to prepare their presentations for their roadshows. So that's the world I play in. And use cases are very random. Like I talked about immigrant entrepreneurs. Yeah. One thing that's really big for me is we help a lot of high net worth and smaller entrepreneurs abroad, like my parents, come to the state and immigrate with business immigration with various visa programs like E2 and EB5. So at the end of the day, we're a turnkey service. We interview our clients, understand their needs, deliver their story, do the research, model financial projections, design things, and package things neatly that would wow an investor. Love it. Love it. All right. So I'm definitely going to come back to that, but I want to do, I do want to go back just because you were involved in some other types of deals. And also I'm sure that prior experience informs what you do now, right? Yep. So talk to us a little bit about the prior deal experience. Obviously you raised capital, you exited the company. Talk to me a little bit about that journey, some of the things you learned along the way, how that may influence what you do today. Absolutely. So a few things I learned about raising capital it had very little to do with the awesome presentations and hard work that I put in my business plans and pitch decks. And it had everything to do with social dynamics. 
right? So the hidden truth that I've learned raising deals is when you start chasing them and, and you're looking for money, no one wants to work with you. And it's dating, right? When you want money, you get advice. And when you ask for advice and feedback, a lot of times, like if you're genuine about it, money comes. So I learned a lot about, hey, how to get introduced to the right people, that setting up that introduction where you're teed up, where you come from a high position of high social dynamics, right? And pitching more so that, hey, you're the prize versus needing their money and having the, the mindset that money is a commodity. Right. It really, it's a matter of confidence and it's a matter of the social dynamics and interaction you have with the person funding your deal. So that's definitely something I learned. So I, I, on that point, let's talk about it because you obviously before you started, and now you do this extensively for other folks and you obviously have a lot of experience coming to that, but you raised capital on your own. So what was some of the learning on how you came to that? I'm assuming that like most su- very successful entrepreneurs, there were some failures, some mistakes you made that helped you learn those lessons. Anything interesting to share on that front? Yeah, absolutely. Look, when I started, I was really raw, right? I, I was a young buck, so to say, and I just jumped into deals. I A lot of times I would pitch without building rapport, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, really like I, I find the best deals, the order needs to be get to know people, get them to like you, get them to feel comfortable, talk business, and then talk about deal terms and specs. Unfortunately, in, in this kind of VC world that we're in today, like people see so many deals, it's really hard to go through like those type of dynamics. So you got to be a little bit more creative. If you just jump, unfortunately, if you get just jumping, you have to pitch yourself and prove yourself. You're doing this from a position of kind of low value, right? So. <laughs> For me, it's about relationship building, how to, how to leverage your network, how to work with people who know and trust you, and you know how to be able to sell without selling. Yeah. And so in terms of your own journey raising capital, tell us a little bit more about, obviously nothing confidential, but what was that like? How many, how did you build that rapport? What type of people did you end up raising money for? What were the lessons in working with outside capital that you learned? Sure. It took me over a hundred coffee meetings and I'll tell you a few things I did wrong and how I would do it over. Yeah. But I started hitting people I was most excited about very early and didn't really refine like my pitch. And I was a little too eager. And really there's a lot of ways of doing this. You can knock on enough doors until one opens and that certainly works, but I wish I was a little bit more strategic. So what I would have liked to have done is really thought long and hard about everyone I know in my network, right? Done a lot of investor research with all these tools that exist now that probably didn't exist 10 plus years ago, right? To do the proper investor research and leave every meeting with either asking for feedback to refine my pitch or introducing me to someone they know that could help me, focusing on building my product, building my team, right? Because Capital comes when you have, if you have something awesome, people will come, right? You build your team, that increases your network and credibility, right? And you can always leave every meeting with something. And if you look at the framework, hey, it's not just about the money, but what can I learn from this meeting? Who can I be introduced to this meeting, right? And not be so eager to close. People like that. 
people are very receptive to that. I, I wish I was a little more strategic about that. And that's like the first thing I would tell myself if I could go back. Great. So that, that's great advice. I know that when I've worked with folks, the other entrepreneurs I know, there's, there is a philosophy that says, hey, no, don't go to your best prospect first because your yeah. first is never going to be the, your best one. Exactly. <laughs> the ones you care about less for a little while and get that feedback and improve the pitch before you go to the ones you really care about. Yeah. Have your target practice. Don't, you don't want to shop the deal either too much either. If this goes around too many people who know you, it's going to feel a little shocked, but yeah, be strategic. Yeah. Love it. So you also had an exit in your company. What do you want? Because listen, mo most folks who are raising capital, a lot of them actually just in that the nature of that capital raising game, especially if they're talking about VC funds as opposed to maybe just angel funds or whatever, um, sure. you know, there's an expectation of an exit in a comparatively shorter period of time than people who are running businesses they can run forever. But even those who have more patient capital or longer term goals, every entrepreneur I know is almost is looking to build some enterprise value ideally and be able to exit. Of course. So talk to us a little bit about the exit experience that, that you had and its relationship to the capital you raised and what you grew and how that's informed some of your thinking now, what you do as well. Yeah, absolutely. Corey, in full transparency, my exit wasn't a lucrative exit by any means. I, I didn't really succeed in my like venture, to put it bluntly. So what I can tell you, it's really important to give very be very transparent to your investors and maintain good relationships, even when things are going badly. So the one thing I did pride myself is as I was burning through cash, I was, I was being very transparent with my problems and I maintained a very professional relationship with the people I worked with, because usually the type, if you, when you're talking to real accredited professional investors, they get the game, right? Yep. And if you act like a pro, you keep those bridges open for, for later. So uh, in my case, my exit was a, just recouping the initial capital for the IP that I built. A lot of lessons learned from the failure. Yeah. And listen, that's a really important point because you hear different stats, but the one I hear most generally, and I remember we had an EO thing years ago with a guy from the London School of Economics who had studied all this stuff. And the general numbers you hear is that seven out of 10 investments that professional investors make are going to turn to zero. Two, two out of 10 are maybe going to break even or make a buck here, but not give them the returns they want. And sure. one out of 10 is really going to be the, if not a unicorn, at least at least make up for the other nine investments. You know, what you said about these professional investors knowing the game and how you handle it is so important because on the one hand, they expect to lose money on most investments. On the other hand, they do not want to you know, be in the dark or think that the blindsided is yeah. not doing their best or exactly blindsided. Yeah. Yeah. Anything, any other thoughts on that? Because I think that's, I think that's an important point because on the one hand you can't say, oh, the investors, they're fine losing money because they're actually not fine. They understand the odds, but they're not fine losing money, especially if they're blindsided. And at the same time, some people actually hesitate to raise money because they don't want to have that responsibility, but there are big boys and girls in the game. Yeah. And this is like really what it is. Like, Obviously, investors don't want to lose money, but they want to feel that you've done everything possible to optimize your chances for success. Because if you communicate early, they might be able to help you. Yeah. You set the expectations that you might need to raise more money. You build a lot of goodwill, right? Look, in my case, it didn't work out. If I was in another venture with the maturity that I have now, I probably would have been able to raise 
more money, right? Especially if you really believed in yourself, right? So the art of investor relationships, investor relations is very important. I would also tell you that the name of the game of ventures has changed a lot as well in the last 20 years. So that whole one, one in 10 hitting that home run, it wasn't always like that. A lot of VCs or professional investors wouldn't necessarily always change uh, chase unicorns, right? They would be okay with four or five X on their investments on a seed round, but they would make they would make investments into less glorious or, or sexy businesses. The only reason I bring that is I, I might I feel like we may see a resurgence of more conservative type investments today. Yeah. So I think there, there's a community out there for people who aren't necessarily building unicorns. I don't think chasing unicorns are healthy. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, also, I agree in both things you, you said. One, that chasing unicorns isn't healthy. And two, yeah, so we've started to see a shift towards folks, that say, especially just with the way the economy has evolved, the way the markets have evolved, all that kind of stuff. But say, hey, we don't have to hit grand slam on everyone, but we can get some nice returns. So I want to, so let's really delve into more of what you're doing now, because it's very interesting what you said at a surface level, one may say, okay, what Mattis says that they prepare plans, pitches and business plans for folks. And then we also heard him say, that's not really that important in the scope of the race. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but you're a consultancy and I'm sure that coming with actually just preparing the plans, there's a lot of coaching and consulting and whatever on the, what they need to, how they need to use the plan, all those things you talked about. Do you want to delve into that a little bit? Because it's interesting, like what you say you do, you also say is not necessarily, it's crucial, right? But it's not necessarily the key thing that helps people raise money. So talk to us a little bit about that dichotomy and also some of the things that you practically provide around the actual preparation of the plan pitch itself. Yeah. Listen, it's a little bit of a paradox, right? But the way I look at that is every step of your fundraising process, there, there are things you can do to optimize like for a close, right? So yes, it is important to have a respectable investor facing document. A lot of time you can't even get the meeting there, right? right? You still have to pitch and you don't want to give an investor a reason to say no. Like you, you could be the pitch master, but if you got a Mickey Mouse like plan or presentation, it's going to lower your credibility. So it's important. But in, what I'm trying to say in the big picture things, people are investing in other people, right? And how you carry yourself in that psychology, how you get set up into that meeting, right? And hey, if you just pitch A to Z without interruptions and they listen politely and you maybe answer a few questions, you're probably not going to get that deal, right? So when I say like the pitch that they see is not that important, like the whole point is how do you engage them in your conversation? How do you draw them in? How do you get them to ask questions? How do you tell your story? Right? People make decisions emotionally and you have to hit the reptile brain, right? So if, if you can't, if you can't activate the reptile brain and you're not, you can't engage them, right? People aren't going to make a rash. People usually don't buy out necessarily a rational decision. They justify things rationally, but they buy emotionally. So. These are things I like to really stress. And in our consultancy, it's very holistic, right? Yes, we prepare the content and research, but it's very important that the entrepreneurs are armed with this type of information and we can coach them on that. Love that. Yeah. So there's this sort of, there's this coaching that goes around the the pitch. And I can imagine, and I'm not just imagining, I've actually been through it. I, the client's been through it. To do it right, the process of preparing a presentation or pitch 
is much deeper than getting words down on paper. It is really developing that story and being able to own it and present it in a way that's authentic. You want to talk about that a little bit? Because I'm, I'm sure based on what I know, what you said, that's that's part of where we have both joked in our off-air conversations about being psychologists for our clients sometimes. Talk about a little bit about how that, just the process of preparing a presentation of pitch helps people really develop and get connected to that, all these other things that you were talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you a few key takeaways on like the whole process of all this. So first thing is the human brain is designed to handle survival and the brain only wants to like look at things that like there's a there's a clear benefit to me and we have something called like a cognitive load. So what that means is if you have complex information that you're trying to communicate and too much detail, no one's listening. No one's listening to you. So how do you prepare a presentation that is simple and how do you, and most of these presentations that we deal with, it's like really innovative, cool, complex technology. Yeah. How do we deliver that? But keeping it simple to understand, it has to be innovative, but it also has to be familiar, right? So how many times have you heard the pitch, this is Netflix meets some something else? The reason for that is you have to have some basis of relevancy and familiarity with the innovative concept. And it has to be really simple. Yeah. So the brain is going to want to process that. So we really study the human mind and we develop that into like our pitch process. So the first thing, the first like rule I tell like clients, like if in your first slide and presentation, is it very clear what your product is? If not, the brain from all the from all from the audience is trying to process what you're trying to say and isn't going to be paying attention to you. Keep it very clear and simple. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. Exactly. What is it that you do on that first slide that no one's anticipating things? There is a psychology. People trying to anticipate what you're talking about. That's also a distraction. Yeah. Be clear what you're presentation is going to be about, right? So people are following along, something simple like that. Keep your headers really big. So there isn't so much room to write too much words, right? And don't use like a template. This is my problem. This is my solution. Don't do that. You have to be different. So what we do with our process is we describe what the problem is in a few dramatic keywords, right? So people are reading that hey, this is a problem without saying the problem. So it's yeah. different. It's not a template. So those are big picture things that we do in our process of developing things that make things count. I love it. And my sense would be that there's so much beyond what goes on the page, to your point about what it takes to really get the deal done and have people really connect on that emotional level. But that process of getting it on the page really Helps entrepreneurs. I'm thinking the first, it's funny that I've had this podcast now for about four and a half years. 
And it was only about six years ago that I actually listened to my first podcast. I was not an early adopter on podcasting. <laughs> and what prompted me to listen to it was that we had Alex Bloomberg, who ended up founding Gimlet Media and had the startup podcast as a speaker at the organization, New York chapter. And I was fascinated by him because he did this podcast. His first, The first podcast he did when he left public radio that was part of this Gimlet Media was a podcast about starting his podcast company. It's called Startup. And one of the episodes that was great, he prepared, he's, trying, he's going to raise capital for this thing. He comes out of public radio. He never was in that world. He has no idea what it's like. Puts together this whole deck and he goes to pitch Chris Saka, who most people know is a very big tech investor. And, and Saka said, he has got, he's got his presentation on the computer, right? And Saka says, no, nah, close that up. Let's go take a walk. <laughs> he has none of his slides. He has none of his whatever. He's just, just pitch me while we're walking. And of course, he first, and it was like one of his first pitches. So he did everything. He went to the top guy early on without being prepared. And then didn't have his slides. Wow. Uh, like totally screwed it up. Although later he got a second chance and they're raising capital. But the reason I raised that is because I'm guessing that obviously, yes, you help people put together a killer presentation or a pitch. If my sense is probably mad, if you're doing it right with them, if they were ever in that situation where the investor said, close the computer, let's take a walk, they'd also be better prepared to pitch even without the actual deck. Yeah, look, in one point of view, having that unorthodox, I guess, opportunity to walk with someone is an opportunity. Yeah. Like now you can have your conversation. That's like really what you want. So yeah, you should really internalize everything where it's just like a conversation, right? So especially if you get a meeting that high level, you gotta be ready for that stuff, okay? There, there's another school of thought, right? And it's the pitch, there's a pitch master named Oren Klopp, who, who I really subscribe to called Pitch Anything, right? He has a mentality, this is your pitch, your agenda, your time, your platform, right? And you don't accept anything. And it gives you a lot of techniques where you build frames and if people deviate and use either their position of dominance to do things their way, that you can bring them back to like your pitch and do things your way. So that's another way of doing things. I personally, if I had an opportunity to walk and not pitch, that's a much more comfortable conversation. I'd actually, I'd jump on that opportunity and it's just, hey, you can just talk about your project when you came to human level. That actually improves your social dynamics. Only I could say is internalize your decks and I never expect to ever just pitch things from line one through 12 and be done. If that's the way you're trained, it's not a, I wouldn't say you really internalize your work. Yeah. Which makes, because even if you are not walking and you do have your slides, listen, a lot of times, right. Investors hop in with questions that are, you're on slide two and they ask a question that's on slide eight, right? Or not exactly. On, right. Great. So what, one of the things that I very often, I think almost most episodes bring up is this conversation of mindset, because I believe that we, you know, don't achieve, I think there's a mindset of an entrepreneur, there's a mindset of a deal maker, which is this, which is different than a mindset of an entrepreneur. So we know many, even very successful entrepreneurs who never do deals. They're great at sales and marketing. They do have mm -hmm. organic growth. They never raise capital. They don't do M&A. They don't do licensing or joint ventures or any of that kind of stuff even though those might be additional great opportunities for them, because I think the mindset of a deal maker is different than the mindset of an What do you run into just helping people prepare their presentations and pitches? I'm sure you, I'm sure they sometimes come up against their limiting beliefs or their lack of confidence in certain areas or whatever it is. Talk to me a little bit about what kind of mindset issues you may run into with some of these folks now you, because I'm sure you must be helping them through that and preparing the pitch and present or presentation. 
Yeah, listen, confidence is really important. If you don't genuinely believe that by taking someone's money, you're helping them, you shouldn't be taking their money, right? You gotta believe in yourself. If you don't believe in yourself, how are other people gonna do it? I will, like, when I run into those situations with low confidence entrepreneurs, I definitely see if I can rally them up, right? They're like, look, like, you gotta understand, no one is gonna wanna invest in you if you're not 100% in, right? And that's why investors love to work with people who are, who've got their balls on the line on a deal too, right? Yeah. If you got serious skin in the game, that means you really believe in yourself. So all these things optimized for helping a close. How much do you really believe in your product? Did you put your money in? Do you feel like by taking someone's money, they're, you're giving them the best opportunity in the world? Are you excited about this? If you're not, there's only so much I could help you, right? So I'll make them stand back and be like, are you sure you're an entrepreneur? Are you sure you want this thing? And what can you do? Corey, do you, what would you say? If someone's not, if, if someone doesn't have the confidence to take someone's money, don't you think that's a big red flag? Sure. So let me raise a variation to that because I know it comes up. So let's say somebody is confident in their product or service, but they may have a lot of confidence in a couple of other areas. First of all, some, some tech founders are just not confident. They're very confident in the tech and the product, yeah. but in their ability to present it and communicate may not be the strength. Um, um, engineers. <laughs> yeah, engineers, exactly. That engineer, right? So you have that. And then also you work with a number of foreign entrepreneurs and, and sometimes there's lack of confidence with folks, whether it's with language barriers or accent issues or whatever that come just internally. Come sure. them. So you want to talk a little bit about th those two areas. So you have somebody who's actually confident in their product or service, but not necessarily confident in their ability to pitch it either because yeah, they're, they're that classic engineer yep. or they're from another place and they're not confident maybe in their language skills. Got it. Yeah, I see where you're going. A few things I would say is the classic engineer focuses on text and specs, right? And really tries to like look at everything like hyper rationally. I've just learned over the years that anybody can pitch with the right training, right? It, it, that takes a little bit of work, right? Because engineers tend to be a very, very syntax based. They're very like, they want to say, they want to say exactly what they mean very literally. And they're not good at telling like a story. And it takes training. You can do it. And they just have to realize that this, th this is the process on how you like raise money. It's based on relationships, right? Like people aren't investing in the product. They're investing in you, Mr. You know, CTO founder. Same with immigrant entrepreneurs. The thing that I love about immigrant entrepreneurs is they're hungry. They're willing to get uncomfortable. They've seen things that wouldn't believe like that people in our Western culture take for granted. So yes, like they may not have the best accents. They may be really raw, but you can really overcome all of that. People are very understanding. Yeah, no question about it. And that immigrant drive, it's, I know, I know this issue gets political and, and I don't want, we don't talk about the politics on the, on this, on this podcast, but most of us in this country are immigrants. And, and I look back to my great grandparents generation and, and the things that they went through to move to this country and be and become a success at a time when there were obstacles, whether it's lack of finances, whether it's certain prejudices or whatever, I'll bet on, I'll bet on immigrants every day in terms of the work. Oh yeah. No question about it. Yeah. Good stuff. So do you find, I guess you work with, you talked about a range of folks that you work with from sort of main street business pitches up to large companies. What is your sort of, what is your sweet spot? Do you, who's your avatar? Who's your ideal client that you look to work with and help the most? Yeah. I would say it's like, a seed stage to series A. 
someone with maybe limited resources that, you know, has got a little bit of traction that needs some serious help to move the needle. Definitely love that. Someone trying to raise like 500 to a few million and has a little bit of just a little bit of money and resources to, to do some damage. Yeah. Good stuff. And any particular industries that you focus in? Is it all mostly tech stuff or is there companies outside that space? Yeah. So our consultancy has 10 different experts on our team right now. So we cover a lot of areas and it's anywhere from real estate, tech, web three, AI, right? All sorts of apps, all sorts of small business. I have a dedicated small business like practice from restaurants to hospitality to healthcare. So we're very diverse right now. We've done over 5,000 plans, Corey, since we've started. Wow. So we've got a we've got a pretty rich library of past projects we could draw on. What, let's talk about what you're seeing in trends. I did a solo cast. By the time this episode comes out, it'll probably be a few months old. I did it. I think we released it in July. Where I do, a lot of times I'll do an end of year or half year review of what we're seeing in terms of the deal market. And at least at that point, there was a definitely a drop in, in deals in terms of capital raising. There was a drop in M&A deals. It was overall across, across the board. I had quoted some articles, read some statistics on what was going on. But obviously, like in any economy, there were certain sectors that were count, that were counted to that. Certainly AI was one of the, in fact, a significant increase in the number of deals in the AI space in July. And I'm assuming by the time this release is probably in October, but it's still going to be true. What are you seeing in terms of trends on where capital is available for companies and maybe where there's industries where there's been some pullback? Yeah, sure. So I've been seeing some interesting activity in reshoring. So some something like a cool trend that I've seen is because we have automation and because we have some AI and because of all the supply chain issues, it's starting to make economic sense to build products in the middle to higher end market in the US and recreate some jobs here. There's a lot of benefit to it. There's a whole field of what we call conscious capitalism. Sure. So if you've got you build something sustainably locally, so you have less carbon footprint, you get things faster, right? I've done two projects right now in the last like month that are reshoring based. One was this knitwear company that sells like pretty high-end knits. And right now they're, they're trying to build a factory in the Midwest because it just makes so much more economic sense to do. And they found a way to improve productivity by a factor of five to one. So with some of the latest like machinery out there, uh, th that's definitely something I probably foresee something, I foresee a lot going to happen with pharmaceuticals and medical devices in the, in, in the same, in the same vein, right? There's, we're deglobalizing in some aspects right now. We're going to do a lot of production that, that directs resources domestically. That's certainly one of the, obviously there were a lot of temporary changes, but there are some permanent or longer term changes that have come out of the pandemic, right? Where people, obviously the whole supply chain issue that's come up out of the pandemic. Also, obviously with, and again, this staying out of the politics of it, the concerns about various countries, including China. Just before we're recording this, I heard that the Biden administration put some restrictions on the different ability to invest in, in different things in China, in certain sensitive areas. There's a number of trends that are deglobalizing or onshoring in certain areas. And I, yeah, I, I agree with you. I expect that to continue for a while. And that creates 
Certainly great. Yeah. And it's interesting. I think AI and automation will exacerbate that now, right? So a US creative critical thinking individual can be much more productive, right? So it might make sense. There might be more of a business case to take some of the services abroad or, or other functions abroad and do them domestically because you can be so much more productive. But it's a crazy world. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and, and yeah, because yeah, you're right. One of the biggest factors in terms of offshoring was the difference in labor costs, right? So if labor costs are so much cheaper in various places, and if you're replacing labor with AI, now that obviously that raises all kinds of other issues that people have in terms of losing jobs and trends like that. But sure. you know, Listen, I've seen it over. I've been around for a number of decades and technology in the micro level always displaces workers, but then it obviously creates other jobs as well. But the point is, despite that, it's going to move forward. And when the biggest difference in offshoring is labor costs, when you're able to address some of that and compress the difference in, in costs by through technology, AI and otherwise, and then when you add in the risk of the supply chain issues, yeah, I think those are definitely factors that are going to continue this onshoring movement. Yeah, it's going to be a brave new world. Some people have concerns that the pace of innovation is moving too fast. So it's going to be hard to absorb all these changes so quickly. There was also a concern of an unemployable class of people because of AI. Yep. So there's going to be a lot of retraining. But yeah, brave new world. Like one thing for sure, change is coming and we got to be ready. Yeah, I think it's inevitable. I think, yeah, the retraining point that you made is I think that's a place where as a country we can do a better job because we have to acknowledge inevitably. I remember years ago, and I've mentioned this, I think, on the podcast before, but when I was, I'm going back 30 years, when I first came out of school 30 something years ago, we used to work as a lawyer representing the newspapers and on the employment management side, employment side. And they had all these jobs because they were unions and unions to help people keep jobs. The technology had changed. They moved from what they call wet press to cold press, basically from little press with ink to digital. And all these pressmen, as they call them, because back then I don't really weren't any women, but had nothing to do anymore. Literally nothing to do. The working those hot presses with the ink, whatever, was gone. Same thing with the uh, with the folks who used to load individual things onto trucks when they containerized everything in the shipping industry. Right? You just put a container on the back of a truck, and there's always going to be disruption on a micro level. And some of those industries, unions, help them keep keep jobs, which you can argue, and we won't get into it here. It's good or bad, but at a micro level, it's good, but then you got a bunch of people that get paid for doing nothing. So yeah. technology, my point much more so is technology is always going to have a shift. There's always going to be adverse impact on a micro level, and but on a macro level, it's progress and it has to happen. So I always have thought the thing that we've missed a step on that we can do better is retraining folks. Because I, I think most folks want to be productive. They don't want to sit around. Of the course. Folks, I think it's the worst thing you could do. Yeah, the worst thing you could do to people is pay them to do nothing. Not a good way to run society. You need a very productive, you need people to feel productive. Society stays in mind. So Matt, before I ask you my final two questions, is there anything else that you want to say we haven't covered about your company, your services or trends or any deal related stuff that come to mind that we haven't covered? Yeah, it just the only thing that like I'd say about our services, we, I'm really proud of our culture. Our culture here is we just want to help entrepreneurs succeed. Yeah. I always tell people, Hey, even if you're really early, call me because I'm all about giving karma points, putting people in the right direction. And if I can't help you, I would be happy to refer you to someone I trust and know that's great at what they do as well. So let's stay in touch. Love it. So before I ask you a final question, where can people find out more about you and your company? Yeah, our website is www.planwriters.net. 
Got a lot of details out there. Check it out. Give us a call. Numbers on the website and feel free to reach out. Excellent. Matt, my final question on the podcast is always about my highest ideal in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means everything from freedom around the world from old people from oppression to why I've been an entrepreneur for decades and haven't had a boss. What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? Yeah, absolutely. So freedom to me is the ability to control my time, ability to make money without my direct life labor, and ability to spend my time with my family, traveling, and doing things that I choose to do on my on my timeline, like doing what I love to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it. Like, what an amazing lifestyle that, that you can reach as an entrepreneur. Not so easy to get to that level, but it's an aspiration point. <laughs> I love it. Matt Kalili, thanks for being such a great guest on the Deal Quest podcast. Absolutely. Thank you having me, Corey. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.